1: at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History,
2: the
0: French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern
2: world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Before we get started, a big thanks goes out to my newest patrons, Or, Mike, and Onik. I'd also like to thank some listeners for writing in with corrections. Thank you to Vladislav, who informed me after my episode A Tale of Two Babylons, that in Bulgaria, Easter is more commonly called Velikdin, or Great Day rather than Pasha, which is their word for Passover. Nevertheless, I do think that my point still stands that their word for the holiday is clearly not derived from Ishtar or Ashtart, but I do appreciate the correction. And I'd also like to thank Lydia, who loves paleontology, and let me know that I made an egregious error that will forever be evident even in the title of the last episode, The Great Dying which is actually a nickname for the Permian-Triassic extinction event, which occurred long before the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction that I was discussing. But it's just such a good nickname. Why not let's apply it to all extinction events? And then I won't have to go back and re-record the whole episode. Either way, thanks so much for these corrections. i do my best with the research, but I do appreciate if I make a big error for someone to let me know on to the show Welcome to Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd and I'll be your cryptozoologist today, following the winding coils of our subject throughout history. On the last episode, I discussed our knowledge of the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event, which destroyed something like 75% of all life on the planet. Whether this was the result of widespread volcanic eruption or asteroid impacts or both, there is consensus, based on the fossil record, that most of Earth's life forms died off at the time. Everyone knows about the extinction of the dinosaurs, but there were many other species destroyed in that extinction event as well, from mammals to invertebrates and even single-celled creatures and plant life. But of course, we also know that some life survived the extinction event. If this were not the case, then we humans and other animals would not be around to proliferate and dominate the planet. So then, how do we know that some dinosaurs did not themselves survive the extinction event? Considering the myths and legends of antiquity and the Middle Ages, one might be tempted to see in tales of dragons proof that some great saurian monsters survived, not just into further prehistoric eras, but even into historical eras, their encounters with men recorded for posterity. For where did the notion of dragons originate, if not derived from those gargantuan reptiles? Some historians have suggested that ancient peoples must have discovered dinosaur fossils and thus extrapolated legends of dragons. Certainly the concept of dragons colored our imagery of dinosaurs in the 19th century. Indeed, much of the early writing about the ichthyosaur and plesiosaur named them quote-unquote sea dragons and even the staunchest opponent of mythologizing the dinosaurs, the originator of scientific dinosaur taxonomy, Richard Owen, conceded to calling the pterodactyl a quote-unquote dragon. This comparison may have even influenced our conception of dinosaur physiology, as only recently have we begun to question the portrait of giant scaled beasts, believing them instead to have been feathered creatures. There is, however, No convincing evidence for the reverse notion that such fossils created our myths of dragons and other monstrous reptilian beasts. Another view holds that the notion of such monsters entered human culture simply because of encounters with known creatures, like large crocodiles and pythons. But this is also doubtful, for considering the great size attributed to them in legend, not to mention their other preternatural attributes, These would have to be inordinately exaggerated tales to establish such myths and legends. Is it not easier to believe, then, that some dinosaurian species could have survived the extinction event that destroyed others, and that perhaps they lived and procreated long enough to have encounters with mankind before going extinct in some later era? Certainly not, you'd say, or the fossil record would surely demonstrate their continued existence in later periods. A nearly unimpeachable argument, to be sure. But what if the evidentiary remains of these few surviving creatures have simply not been discovered yet? And could this be because they dwelt in the most remote places on Earth, the deepest and darkest of habitats, the ocean depths, If so, could it possibly be that some have survived even to this day? Thank you for listening to Leviathan, or The Great Sea Serpent, Part 1, Here Be Dragons. Despite the speculation that dinosaur fossils may have been stumbled upon in antiquity and recognized as the remains of enormous reptiles, the knowledge of such creatures appears to have originated in the late 17th century, when in 1677 English naturalist Robert Plot discovered a massive petrified femur Plot's assumption that it was the bone of a gargantuan man might serve as an example of what discoverers of fossil remains in antiquity may have assumed upon finding large bones. Likewise, when the Lewis and Clark expedition found a large bone in a cliffside in 1806, Meriwether Lewis believed it to have belonged to a great fish. It was not until the 1820s and 30s, and the discovery of further fossilized bones in England, that the classification of the dinosaur began with the description of the Megalosaurus in 1824. The vocabulary we know today would come into use in 1841, when the aforementioned Richard Owen coined the term dinosaur, a Greek portmanteau of terrible and lizard. Still, however, the notion of dinosaurs did not take hold of the public imagination. It had much to overcome, not the least of which was the resistance of a religious establishment that had decided in the 17th century that the Earth had been created in 4004 BC, on October 23rd, at 9am to be as precise as the Archbishop on whose calculations they relied. Therefore, the entire notion of vast primordial ages proven by the fossil record of extinct creatures, challenged their entire world view. Another hurdle that early paleontologists faced was the very conception of dinosaurs. It was one thing to read about the bones and to hear the descriptions of the creatures, but another entirely to see them and conceive of them as they might have been in life. Richard Owen overcame this obstacle in 1854 when he opened a display of life sized dinosaur statues at Crystal Palace in Sydenham, London. He called it the, quote, first public revivifying of the dinosaur, end quote, and the display may be responsible for Western culture's obsession with dinosaurs ever since. But of course, as previously indicated, even the scientifically minded Owen resorted to evoking the image of ancient dragons at Crystal Palace in order to help the viewing public to conceive of the creatures as he conceived of them. It is perhaps, however, a strange supposition to think that people would have had a hard time imagining such beasts without statues and directions to think of them as dragon-like. It would seem mid-19th century Englishmen and women would have been easily able to conceive of giant reptilian monsters for there had been unsettling news in the press for decades, complete with illustrations of colossal sea serpents spotted all over the world. Visitors to Owen's exhibition surely had heard of the so-called Great Sea Serpent, a fantastical hypothesized marine creature that had come to worldwide attention over the course of a spate of sightings in New England in 1817. And had been witnessed in various parts of the world's oceans ever since, from the coasts of Norway to the waters of Nova Scotia and all the way down to the South Atlantic Ocean, where in 1848 the crew of the HMS Daedalus experienced one of the most publicized and compelling encounters with an unidentified sea creature that has ever been recorded. The irony is that the father of the dinosaurs, Richard Owen, had taken umbrage at the attention these sightings had drawn, especially that of the Daedalus, for he saw the public's fascination with them and the credulous acceptance of them as unscientific. He had dedicated his life to the painstaking study of the fossil record and anatomical science, And here were some squinting sailors and hucksters come round to tell the world that one of the principal tenets of paleontology, that the monstrous primordial creatures he studied had all gone extinct, was false. To Owen, this represented a backsliding into pre-enlightenment superstition, when rather than simply marking unknown areas of maps as terra incognita, cartographers would write Hic sunt Draconis, or here be dragons, and would populate the blank spaces of their maps with fanciful illustrations of monsters, and scholars would compile lists of preposterous phenomena, as in Conrad Lycosthenes's 1557 Prodigium Ac Ostentorum Chronicon, or Chronicles of Prodigies and Portents, which featured more than a thousand woodcuts of strange spectacles, including numerous sea monsters. Indeed, Richard Owen's vocal criticism of the validity of sea serpent sightings and the credibility of their witnesses had earned him the nickname, quote, the Sea Serpent Killer, end quote. Thus, it is exceedingly ironic that even he would have recourse to comparing the dinosaurs to dragons in his strictly scientific exhibition. The underlying truth this fact may suggest is that even disregarding the rampant sea serpent sightings of the 19th century, all of which, rest assured, we will examine or review with varying detail in this series before we conclude, and notwithstanding the rich lore of dragons and sea monsters originating before the Age of Enlightenment in the Age of Discovery and the Middle Ages, notions of huge reptilian and serpentine beasts have been embedded in human consciousness across cultures, far back into antiquity and beyond, to the very foundations of myth. Even in the furthest reaches of human civilization, we have traditions of gods or great heroes who did battle with serpentine monsters associated with the ocean. Consider, for example, the Mesopotamian myth of Marduk and Tiamat, the mother of monsters and dragons. The hero god Marduk faced her on the battlefield, loosing an arrow into her open jaws and splitting her heart in two. Although some scholars dispute her general appearance as portrayed by the Babylonians, it is generally accepted she took a snake-like form, and she is clearly associated with the salt waters, and was of so immense a size that Marduk was able to form all of heaven and earth out of her corpse. So one might justly consider her the first great sea serpent the idea of all creation being made possible by the heroic defeat of a sea monster or god appears across cultures. Canaanites held that Baal defeated Yam to create the world, and likewise Yahweh, god of the Israelites, struggled against a sea monster or monsters at the time of creation. In various places in the Bible, we find reference to Rahab, the quote-unquote boisterous sea serpent. Tanim, variously translated as sea monster or dragon, and of course Leviathan, the quote-unquote twisting serpent of Isaiah, the Psalms, and Job. While it is unclear whether these were single or separate serpents, their role is the same. By defeating them, Yahweh establishes order out of the chaos of the waters. The creature is also presented as proof of the power of Yahweh, for in Job the question is posed whether a mere man could hope to catch Leviathan with a fish hook. And funny enough, that is exactly what is done in Norse mythology, though not by a mere man, when the god Thor undertakes an ambitious fishing trip hoping to land the world serpent, Jormungandr. Baiting his hook with a giant ox's head and hooking the beast, Thor thrusts his feet through the bottom of his boat and into the floor of the sea, hauling the serpent up to look it in the eye. The serpent got away that day, but it was foretold that Thor would face it again during the final struggle of Ragnarok. Thor sought out the world serpent for vengeance, but often we find in these sea serpent myths the hero, perhaps not a god but at least a demigod, facing the beast in an effort to save a damsel. Greek mythology provides more than one example of this, with Heracles saving Hesione from a sea monster, and likewise Perseus rescuing Andromeda, both women having been chained to rocks as sacrifices to appease the god Poseidon, who had sent the monsters to devastate their kingdoms. Now, I am no Alexander Hislop. I do not suggest that these similarities mean these are but different names for the same figure, or that these myths represent retellings of one real encounter between an ancient hero and a primordial monster. But is it not possible that this sea monster motif in ancient mythology suggests some inherited human knowledge of gigantic sea-dwelling reptiles? Or did these remarkably dinosaurian creatures spring fully formed from human imagination? Now for a brief intermission. Hi, listeners. Remember that the ads and sponsors of this program only contribute a small portion of the already meager earnings of this show. If you'd like to contribute to this project and help me turn it into a viable enterprise, remember that you can pledge support on Patreon at patreon.com historicalblindness. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to an ad-free stream of the show that also includes teasers and fully produced patron-exclusive bonus episodes. And at higher tiers, you can get early access to episodes and other perks. Become a patron of the show today and get the full story.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace.
0: I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called A Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest. And I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of Urhador Souglain, an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today.
2: Now, back to the show. It is interesting that the customary explanations relied on to dismiss later sea serpent encounters, usually that they were actually encounters with creatures that we can easily identify today, are also used to explain away old myths such as these. For example, the Leviathan of Job is simply a crocodile, some claim, even though descriptions have it breathing fire or rearing seven heads, or it was just a whale. This one, of course, is a perennial favorite, as the sheer size of whales and the fact that only part of them could be glimpsed in the water surely could have meant they were the source of some supposed sea monster sightings. Leviathan is also sometimes conflated with the creature that swallowed Jonah in the Bible, and this creature has clearly been assumed to have been a whale, although the Hebrews called it rather vaguely a quote-unquote big sea creature. Then, there is the sea monster of Greek mythology, the so-called Cetus, that Poseidon sent against man. It is often pointed out that this is the same word from which the word cetacean is derived, which is our scientific classification for marine mammals like whales. Indeed, the word Cetus, or more accurately Ketos before its Latinization, appears to have been used in ancient Greek to mean both a whale and a sea monster or sea serpent. But to suggest that ancient Greeks held some misconception of the nature of the whales that populated the Mediterranean would be inaccurate. Among other sea creatures, whales in particular presented themselves for easy anatomical study, for they beached themselves and died, or expanded with methane when dying at sea and floated to shore to continue decomposing. The bones of whales have been recovered as ancient Greek artifacts used to make objects like tables. And Greek and Roman philosophers and naturalists, like Aristotle and Pliny, make their knowledge of whales clear. Aristotle, for example, notes they, quote, have no gills but a blowhole instead, end quote. And lacking teeth, they, quote, have instead hairs similar to pig's bristles, end quote a clear description of baleen plates. Rather than convince us that the Cetus of legend was not a whale, perhaps their knowledge of whales might cement the notion that the word was always only used to refer to whales. And it should be pointed out that in the Bible, Jonah boarded his ship in Jaffa. And that was the same place where it was said Andromeda had been chained in offering to the monstrous Cetus. So perhaps both of these encounters were, after all, with a whale. Although chaining up a human sacrifice for a whale seems rather ridiculous given what we know of whales. And other descriptions of the monstrous Cetus make its differences from a whale starkly clear when Virgil uses the term to refer to the sea serpents that attack Laocoon and his sons, he describes them as, quote, rearing in coils, their bodies thrashing, backs rolling in coil on mammoth coil, flickering tongues licking their hissing moths, end quote. Now, of course, this creature was a poetic invention, as was the Marcus Manilius description of the Cetus that attacked Andromeda at Jaffa. But in much the same way, Manilius describes it as coiled with scales and jaws. At least one scholar, Kathleen Coleman, has attempted to see a description of a whale in Manilius' portrait, but one would be hard-pressed to see in these descriptions anything but the monstrous sea serpent of legend and although not witness accounts, they certainly go to show that ancient Greeks were not only thinking of whales when using the word cetus or ketos. A couple final examples to illustrate this come to us from Pliny, who recorded the discovery of more than one huge sea monster whose remains had washed ashore. On the coasts of an island near Lyon, He describes the tide leaving hundreds of monsters, of incredible size, stranded. Another on the coast of Spain was said to have more than a hundred teeth as long as nine inches. And yet another on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, again near Jaffa, was more than forty feet long, with a spine one and a half feet thick and ribs taller than any elephant. One might argue that these could very well have been the remains of whales, but considering the Greeks' known familiarity with whales, it is then unusual that the bones of the latter creature were thereafter taken to Rome and placed on display as the very sea monster that had attacked Andromeda at Jaffa so many years before. With the discovery of physical remains, one sees that antiquity offers more than just poetic renderings of mythical sea creatures. And beyond reports of remains, which one could argue might be misidentified, there are records of eyewitness encounters with monsters that dwell in the deep. One incident, recorded by Orosius, but likely derived from a lost history by Livy, occurred in the Bagradas, a river near Carthage in northern Africa that spills directly into the Mediterranean Sea. A Roman commander had his troops in camp beside the river, and when they went to fetch water, a huge reptile, some 120 feet long, poisoned and devoured numerous men, and the soldiers' javelins glanced harmlessly off of its thick scales. The report goes into singular detail indicating that the creature had no feet and describing its motion as that of a serpent or snake, quote, by a sinuous movement extending its sides first right and then left, end quote. Eventually, the Roman soldiers defeated the serpent by flinging a boulder on it with a ballista, and its viscera were said to poison the water. They carried the creature's skin and jaws back with them to Rome for all to wonder at. Aristotle indirectly corroborates this incident on the Bagradas River when he describes massive serpents overturning fleets of boats in the sea off the North African coast. Meanwhile, Pliny the Elder mentions large snakes swimming in the Red Sea, and Livy describes massive snakes leaping out of the water in the seas south of Rome. Now all of these encounters might be explained by suggesting they were exaggerated accounts of encounters with prosaic beasts. The leaping snakes seen from Rome may have actually been the backs of dolphins, and others may have been genuine sea snakes of large size. The Bagratus beast, often supposed to be a crocodile, does not seem as easily explained away though, for its sinuous serpentine movements would not suggest those of a crocodile, and even if its reported length of 120 feet were inaccurate, it must have been miraculously large to warrant the display of its remains as a quote, object of wonder, end quote, for more than a hundred years. Nor was the Bagradas beast alone in its mythic proportions. Around 75 BCE, Posidonius described the corpse of a sea monster 100 feet long and its jaws 7 feet wide. Describing the same creature, Strabo noted that its jaws were large enough when gaping for a man on horseback to enter it, that each of its scales was 4 feet long, the size of a shield, and men mounted on horseback on either side of it could not see each other. These descriptions were not of bones but of fresh creatures with the scales of their flesh intact, and so considering the knowledge of whales that we know ancient mariners and coastal dwellers had, it seems unlikely they would have mistaken a beached whale for a scaled monster. And we have reports of similarly massive sea creatures when they were still alive, as when Elian shares the reports of mariners who have seen the so-called Scolopendra, a creature that was supposed to be able to lift its head above the water as it swam, the entirety of its body visible on the surface, with what appeared to be thousands of tiny feet or flippers propelling it like oars protruding from a galley. We have reports of the remains of these Scolopendra from Theodoraitis and Antipater. To explain them, scholars have suggested, again, they were merely whales. And the feet must have simply been an illusion created by ripples, or perhaps sucker fish, attached all in a row to the whale's side. And I suppose attached in this way also to every whale mistaken for a Scolopendra by experienced sailors who had likely seen whales before. Another theory goes that the Scolopendra may have not been a whale at all, but rather a giant squid, a creature whose own existence was for so long doubted and its sightings explained away. As the sea serpent enters medieval lore, it is difficult to separate myth inspired by Greek and Roman poets from genuine sightings. One example of the fanciful legends coming out of medieval Europe would be that of King Olaf II of Norway, who was said to have slain an orm, or sea serpent, and thrown it onto a cliffside where its shape could still be discerned. And as we leave the Middle Ages with their tales of dragons and dragon slayers behind and enter the Age of Exploration, We continue to find Norway, with its storied sea orm, to be a hotbed for sea serpent sightings. In the mid-16th century, historian and cartographer Olaus Magnus did much to make this great Norway serpent famous. A Catholic priest exiled from Sweden after its conversion to Lutheranism, Magnus started drawing up his Carta Marina, or sea map, in 1527. By 1539, it was the biggest and most detailed and accurate map of any European region, and scattered across it were illustrations of a variety of sea monsters. These were no decorative dragons set down merely to fill empty space, though, as had been the practice among map makers previously, but rather depictions of sea monsters that sailors had actually reported seeing whose eyewitness accounts were collected in Magnus's History of the Northern People to accompany the map. The most fantastic of those shown on the map is coiled about a ship's mast and striking with bared fangs at a sailor on the ship's deck. This sea serpent had been reported by numerous fishermen and trade navigators that plied the waters around Norway's coasts. It was between 200 and 300 feet long and 20 feet thick living in caves and feeding on livestock that strayed too close to the shore. The beast was black, they said, with shining eyes that seemed to gleam like fire. Covered with scales, it swam about with its head held high out of the water, a mane of hair glistening on the back of its neck, and sailors knew not to watch it from the decks of their ships lest it draw near and snap them up. Magnus's sea serpent stories spread from there into early zoological texts, like Sebastian Munster's 1544 Chart of Marine and Terrestrial Monsters, Conrad Gessner's 1558 Historia Animalium, Edward Topsell's 1608 History of Serpents, and on they went from the 17th to the 18th century, when more modern sightings began to shape the notion of the Great Sea Serpent with which Richard Owens would do intellectual battle. Perhaps the first of these modern sightings, again in Norway, was that of missionary Hans Egede in 1734, who saw a monster emerge from the water, raising its head, quote, as high as the masthead. end quote. Its body, he said, was as big as the ship that carried him, and it, quote, spouted like a whalefish, end quote, before falling backward and raising its tail. Now to the modern reader, it is easy to dismiss this as a breaching whale despite the fact that Egaday's own words indicate some familiarity with whales. But Egede also described its skin as, quote, rugged and uneven, end quote, and, quote, covered in shell work, end quote. This scale-like quality to the skin might be explained away with the presence of excessive barnacles on the whale, but this would not be the only sighting in Norwegian waters in those years for a Captain Lawrence de Ferry would report seeing another serpent, or quote-unquote sea snake as he called it, near Bergen in 1746. And he and his fellow sailors would describe it under oath in a deposition. The creature passed them and they brought the ship about to draw nearer to it, firing a gun at it until it disappeared into the bloody water. This serpent, they said, held its very horse-like head with its long white mane two feet above the water, and behind its neck, they spied as many as eight coils of its thick body, with about a fathom or six feet between each, making it at least 50 feet long. If this is the creature Egede saw, for he also described its head as quote-unquote oblong, like a horse's, then it sounds less and less like a whale. As sightings like these were spread in those years, in works like Bishop Erik Pontapidan's 1753 Natural History of Norway or John Johnston's 1767 Natural History of Fishes, they were sometimes treated as genuine and sometimes relayed with skepticism, and the scholarly practice of suggesting that the sailors had just seen some other readily identifiable animal began. Despite the fact that often sailors were far more likely to have seen firsthand and be able to discern such creatures than the writers who doubted their faculties, their sea serpent sightings were blamed in the 19th century on not only whales and squids, but on sharks, seals, sea lions, porpoises, eels, or fish and simple logs and seaweed. But while this scientific skepticism became almost zealous, an atmosphere that Richard Owens, father of the dinosaur, would do much to establish and perpetuate, the seemingly credible sightings of sea serpents seemed to multiply, almost as if to spite their doubts. Join me next time for part two of Leviathan the Great Sea Serpent as we enter the chaos waters of sea monster sightings in the modern era and try to come to some conclusion as to the believability of all these big fish stories. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past Podcast. I want to thank my sharp-eyed partner patrons, Marina, Joe, Michael, Jacob, Robert, Diane, and David. You're the crew I'd most want to serve with when encountering a primordial monster from the deep. Some music on this episode was provided by film composer Alex Kish. Check out his work at alexkishmusic.com. Additional music by Creepy Pizza whose work can be found on most music streaming platforms. While you're online, visit the blog at historicalblindness.com to see images and find links to further reading and citations for academic sources. You can also find book recommendations for almost every episode topic on the Books tab, as well as a link to my own book, Manuscript Found, a historical novel about the rise of the anti-Masonic political party and the composition of the Book of Mormon. If you liked the episode or were a fan of the show, give it a rating and review wherever you can, especially iTunes, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, when they ask if you're certain of what you saw, make sure to tell them that you've seen whales before, and this was no whale. This is the story of the one.